Greetings and welcome to Worship Matters, a podcast from Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church located in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. This podcast deals with the intricacies of planning worship each week. I'm Lisa Hancock, Director of Worship Arts. And I'm Diana Sanchez-Bouchong, Executive Director of Worship Resources and Director of Music Ministries. During this time of transition from virtual to online and hybrid worship, the worship team has endeavored to provide conversations that inspire worship teams and leaders to seize this moment and realize the opportunities before the church, finding ways to help those worshiping with us to re-engage and shape the church we are becoming. Today, we are going to talk with Reverend John Thornburg. John is Director of Research at the Texas Methodist Foundation, where his recent work in encouraging congregations centers in five practices, grieving well, discerning purpose, walking alongside neighbor, decentering power, and expanding imagination. He's retiring next week after 10 years at TMF and 43 years in ministry settings, both in the United States and West Africa. Welcome, John, and thank you for joining us today. I have to tell you, reading that bio, as short as it is, I feel like there are so many stories between the lines um, that... (laughs) that you could probably spend days telling us about. But today, I want to start just by asking, how are you doing and what is life like for you right now? Well, I have a ton of feelings happening in myself, and so I'm trying to keep them all in, in front of me. <laughs> the joy of remembering what God has opened up to me over these years and some anxiety that just comes with transition, but... I am feeling deeply, deeply blessed at this moment. And I just have to say, woohoo! <laughs> wow, to to be retiring and to in a week, oh my goodness, and all these years. And I mean, you are not a stranger to anybody who's listening today. We we know that we've mm-hmm. sung your songs that are in the faith we sing, and and other places, and certainly have heard you in. Uh, various contexts about the church, about adaptive leadership and so forth. So thank you, John, for all you're doing. And I look forward to what's coming up next in this these years of retirement. I wanted to say that today is a continuation of conversations we've had with John over the last couple of years. We've been leaning on him to to have conversations with us concerning what's been going on in in our culture, in our world, in in our church. So, you know, without a doubt, our churches have seen many changes due to COVID-19, while also navigating a polarized political landscape, an uptick in gun violence and racism. We've also seen how disaffiliation is affecting all of us who are called United Methodist. Whether we are part of the church that is staying UMC, or we're at a church that is leaving, or we are having to leave a church community, there is a lot of grief. And we're naming that, that reality right now. Recently, I was a part of a service where we sang, When There's Trust in the Room, which John, you wrote, and Mark Miller set to music. And that's where I want to start our conversation today. Tell us about this hymn, When There's Trust in the Room, 
And then we can talk a little bit more about how music and worship can help congregations going through changes to sit with their grief, to share in lament as a way to then make space for hope, for anticipation and new beginnings. So tell us about this hymn, John. Well, let me start by naming what I think we're going through. I'm calling it serial liminality. (laughs) That Mm. is, we seem to be in between forever. Mm. which is stressful and fatiguing. Uh, So many are finding it hard to feel traction toward what God might be doing. So into that, and because things are pretty raw-edged, sometimes in the church, I am glad to see this song getting into circulation. Here's the story. Uh, The the song itself didn't come out of a liminal time. It it came from a place of gratitude mm-hmm. that the Holy Spirit had inhabited a group in the midst of some real disagreement about our purpose and method. <laughs> the group was called Holy City. It was modeled after a deeply creative portion of the Iona community's work. Our group had seven amazing pastoral musicians And because they all had real passion for the worship of the church and for its song, sometimes our conversations could get pretty intense. Well, at the close of one particularly intense evening, I said something like, wow, we've really put some stuff on the table tonight, hard stuff. And then the wonderful Susie Bird, one of the members Mm -hmm. of the group, said, yes, but when there's trust in the room, you can do that. Mm -hmm. Well, I knew I had to use those words in a song lyric, and I wrote it that night. But then it sat in my files for 10 years. But uh, not too long ago, I was in conversation with Mark Miller about what it felt like to be in the UMC right now. Mm. And I asked him if I could send him the text. And he said, read me a little of it. So I said, okay, when there's trust in the room, we can breathe. When we don't undercut or deceive when there's grace in the air and respect everywhere, when there's trust in the room, we can breathe. Mm. (laughs) Mark said, please send it. (laughs) And uh, so that's where it came. And I'm, I'm happy to say I've heard it sung twice in public, and it seems to be helping people think about now. (laughs) Yes. But here's, here's one of the things I, I really want to say about this. The the thing I'm certain I don't want to happen with this song is for people to use it as a weapon. Mm. The reason we're in such a mess is that you're not willing to trust. Mm. No, no, please, please, no. We have to sing this song aspirationally because we desperately need to create space in which people can trust each other. Amen. And I think the final verse is the dream verse, right? When there's trust in the room, we can dream. And I just, that's, you have such a good progression through that hymn. Mm -hmm. Would you mind reading the other verses? Because I think, I think they're just amazing. Not at all. Stanza two is, when there's trust in the room, we can see. When the blinders come off and we're free. When we're honest and fair and receptive to care. When there's trust in the room, we can see. And then the final stanza, when there's trust in the room, we can dream. 
when our motives are just what they seem, when our thoughts freely flow and we're challenged to grow, when there's trust in the room, we can dream. And, and then the wonderful Mark Miller saw that it needed a refrain. And so, hallelujah, sing hallelujah, when there's trust in the room, we can see. Mm. Mm. Wow, I, I find such hope in naming and and moving in a positive direction, yeah. as you're, you were saying. Yeah. It strikes me, John, how much that hymn as aspiration is also kind of an invitation to cultivate the gifts that it, it talks about. And, and to almost, I hear it, and this may just be my perspective, but I hear it and I had the opportunity to also hear it sung. And I thought, oh, what a moment of being called to recognize that trust is work. That there is a that it is both a gift and it is a work that we do together in community, which is what I love about the work that you've done in Congregational Song, which is that we we do the work in part by singing it together, right? By by it's not just a solo; it is something for all of us to to put to voice together. Mm-hmm. So I just I just also want to extend my gratitude for what that is and where it could take us. Yeah, I. In relationship to that, I mean, when I think about decentering power, which is part of the work that you've been doing with TMF, and it's certainly something that you talked about the last time you were on our podcast with us, Congregational Song is one of those places where we decenter, right? We put the words back into the mouths of all of the people, and we all get to kind of sing slash proclaim and preach with one another. But as we're talking about this idea of communal lament, I I really began to wonder what you would have to say to the idea that communal lament is also a way that we can act out that decentering of power in worship together. Lisa, I think that's a wonderful direction to go. I appreciate you bringing it up. Yes. Uh, the, the shorthand way I'd put it is we, we simply have to get more power off the chancel and into the room. Mm. There are a couple of things that come right to mind. I don't know if some of them may seem slightly contradictory, but let's try. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> First is, in communal lament, we may have to explicitly privilege silence over speech. And... That's something we own together. That's something that we either get uncomfortable in, which we often do, or which we finally rest into, which can be an extraordinary gift. So I think any thought of communal lament now needs to explicitly privilege silence over speech. I also think we need to give the power and agency for expressing grief over to the people as much as we possibly can. This is another way of getting the power off the the chancel. So what if we simply invite the people to speak their own psalms? Mm. You know, sometimes people simply don't realize that much of our religious language is actually a psalm. Mm, it's mm-hmm. like, it's like, no, those are in the Bible. 
<laughs> I couldn't speak Assam, but I'm convinced that if anyone starts speaking and says, God, what I need to say to you today is, then what's going to follow it is a psalm. And the worshiper doesn't need to self-edit. You know, Walter Brueggemann has that wonderful way of talking about the psalms, of saying that they are the raw, unedited experience of the people of God. And I think that, for example, clergy as worship leaders need to deeply appreciate that some liturgical speech that is especially this more congregationally centered, more improvisational, participatory speech may sound more raw, but I'm wanting to take that risk because it may be so much more real. Mm. And then I think about the power of short songs, mm -hmm. the ones that create community in the moment. I'm especially drawn to a song from Southern Africa, a Zulu song called Wozan Namtwalo, which translates, Come, bring your burdens to God. And the second phrase is, For Jesus will never say no. Oh my, mm. Jesus will never say, I'm not listening. <laughs> wow. It, it, if we do this kind of personal psalm work, spoken or sung, I think we're being perfectly clear that we're hurting. Mm. And we are giving speech to our lament. And that gives us energy. It, it gives me the gift of powerful self-expression, which God gave me. And therefore, in speaking it, it must mean I'm alive. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I have to share a, a quote. I, I'm, some of my words were Brueggemann's words, but listen to this. This is amazing. He says, when pain is brought to speech, it turns to energy. When it is not brought to speech, it turns to despair. That means that the people who make a difference are the ones who bring pain to speech. Wow. Oh, wow. Mm. That changed me hearing it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned the short songs, and we were talking earlier, and you were talking about a John Bell song that you thought would be a, a good catalyst for a church to be able to lament. And so talk about that song and maybe any other songs that you're that are are rising for you right now that we can think about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was an experience I had over 20 years ago. John was leading a workshop on the power of lament. And he brought a song that he had written a few years earlier. There had been a couple great friends of his from his hometown who had desperately wanted to be pregnant. And after years and years, got pregnant, brought the baby to term, and the baby died after living one day. They were, they were crushed, as you can imagine. And the unfortunate thing is that some of the members of the congregation said things to them like, well, it's okay because you can have another one. 
and that drove them out of the church. This grieved John greatly, Mm. but he knew that there was enormous tenderness and vulnerability here. Mm. And so what he chose to do was write a song, whether he ever shared it with them or not. this, This may be another aspect of how we do congregational lament. Sometimes we just need to encourage our people to write things, whether they will ever be spoken or sung, just because we need to. Well, okay. So thinking about those dear friends of his who had lost the baby, he wrote these words. We cannot care for you the way we wanted, or cradle you or listen for your cry, but separated as we are by silence, love will not die. We cannot watch you growing into childhood and find a new uniqueness every day. But special as you would have been among us, you still will stay. Mm. We cannot know the pain or the potential that passing years would summon or reveal. But for the true fulfillment Jesus promised, we hope and feel. Though through the mess of anger, grief, and tiredness, through tensions which are not yet reconciled, we give to God the worship of our sorrow and our dear child. Mm. And then finally, Lord, in your arms which cradle all creation, we rest and place our baby beyond death, believing that she now alive in heaven, Hmm. breathes with your breath. Okay, now you could hear in my voice, (laughs) in the room, John asked us Mm. to sing the song. He was very clear, very clear with us that this wasn't for public singing. He was very clear that he was nowhere near offering this song to that couple. He just said, I had to imagine what they might, might be able to say. Mm. And so he, he knew he had to grieve. Okay, so here's what happened. So we're weeping like crazy. Well, we mm-hmm. left that workshop and we went into a workshop with Ruth Duck and she could see what had happened to us. You know, we're all crying. So she put aside her lesson plan, gave us pieces of paper and said, draw how you're feeling which was, mm. you know, Ruth. I mean, it's just this wonderful thing. <laughs> okay, well, then we went to lunch. And we're still just overtaken by this. There were nine at the lunch table, seven women and two men. And though I know it's not statistically typical, all seven women had miscarried. And all of a sudden, uh, an extraordinary tenderness and power began to emerge. And one of the women was really weeping. And the angel that God had sent to sit next to her, just comforted her and said, do you want to tell us what's going on? Yes, she said, my husband forbid me to say the baby's name. Mm. And so the angel sitting next to her said, we do not forbid you. And we invite you to say your child's name And she did. Well, that was an absolutely life 
transforming experience. Mm -hmm. It was not public communal worship. It was small and local. Mm. Now, I, don't hear me saying that we shouldn't do uh, the communal services of lament. I just think that the gift of that was the vulnerability of the songwriter that said, I wonder if someday this may be helpful, but whether it is or not, I have to write it. Wow. Wow. Whew. I, yeah, there's a lot there to unpack. <laughs> yeah. what, but what what a beautiful way of allowing the space. And again, bringing back that um, element of trust, that if there's trust in the room, then we can hold space for each other. And we can feel that that is a sacred space, mm-hmm. which then allows this work to happen. That's just amazing. So that makes me think about, as Lisa and I have talked about resources for our church as we're lamenting, as we're grieving, friends leaving churches and and people leaving churches that they grew up in and has been part of their lives for generations. The question then is, how do we help some of that kind of healing happen in these churches? And what I'm hearing you say, it, it has to happen at the local level. It has to be part of what would just comes up for those for those folks if there's a psalmist in that room or everyone in that room is a psalmist giving that space so you have worked with the adaptive leadership model and so th- this is what is coming to my brain what do you see as the greatest need in our changing landscape how do we respond and be part of this adaptive transformation that's happening diana thank you for that Some of the work that I have been blessed to be engaged in with my colleagues at TMF is to think about how to respond to clergy and laity who got the wind knocked out of them by COVID Mm. and who are longing for what used to be, but realize that living in what used to be is not going to bring it back. And so we began to ask, what are the practices which can help individuals and congregations to get some faith traction? (laughs) Mm. And we called 75 different people nationwide. And when we collated all of their responses, what it came to were five practices, which we then called adaptive muscles, (laughs) things that need to be stretched and exercised in our congregational lives, uh, lest we atrophy, lest we get sucked further into nostalgia. And it's, it's fascinating that the first one almost every respondent named was grieving well. Mm. Uh, We need to name our loss. We need to name what's slipping away. We need to create safe spaces for those who really need to express their sorrow. So every time we work with a congregational cohort, that's where we start. And isn't it fascinating that 
the number one answer to what's what are we losing is our sense of standing in the community. Mm. Wow, that could go either way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we used to be somebody. Um, or maybe a certain pride. But anyway, so one of the things we know congregations need to be attentive to is grieving well. Uh, the second is to, to discerning purpose, asking the very basic but powerful question, God, what's the difference you're calling this faith community to make in the upcoming season? And now you, I hope you'll see as I go through these that all of these could yield liturgical resources. Mm-hmm. I mean, could provoke Mm-hmm. They need liturgical resources, and I'll say something about that in a minute. So the third one is walking alongside neighbor. We retreated indoors for a long time, and when we came out, we were awkward, mm-hmm. and we still are. And there's just beginning to be people writing about the effect of that. But it is a very awkward moment in facing our neighbors. And so our tendency, and I I regret having to say this, our tendency in many instances to treat neighbor as instrumental, that is, as good for our purposes. Like saying to our neighbor, you're only good to us if you join the church Mm -hmm. and help us pay the bills. Mm -hmm. We have to face very squarely that we've had that kind of instrumental view of people. And so in some ways, to use recent language I heard, we have to relearn how to sanctify friendship. Uh, Hmm. What would it be like if the denominal mission statement were making Hmm. friends in order to journey together, in order to transform the world for Christ? Um, Hmm. So in any case, the fourth one, decentering power, and we've begun to allude to that, it has two... Two foci, one, what are the gifts that are resident in our congregation that we've not helped rise to the surface? Uh, And the flip side of it, which are the voices which have been central for a long time, which if they were to step, take a step back and allow other voices to emerge, what kind of energy would happen. Uh, and then finally, expanding imagination. Well, this is this is the one that most teams say, oh, yeah, well, that's where we want to spend all of our time because, <laughs> because we need to risk. Well, risking is some hard work. We're not good at it. Experimenting is not our strong suit. Failure is not in our vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... Okay, so if if those are five realities, adaptive realities, do do we already have hymnody which allows us to stretch these muscles? Well, we do. Now, here again, this is a matter of commitment. And we do face the dilemma that oftentimes in week-to-week worship planning, there's not a lot of time. Mm But I see too many pastors who fail to realize that there may be investigators within the congregation who, if asked to 
look at the resources, the, the myriad resources of song within the church with a certain lens in mind, they might find some amazing things. So again, that's decentering power. <laughs> right, yeah. That, that's saying to, to the pastor or whoever the, worship, the main worship leader is, um, who can help you with this? Then, is it possible we need to add petitions that will be new to us? <laughs> so, for example, if, if sanctifying friendship is really important, then ought we not to have petitions in the worship that ask God to guide us to new friends? Mm. <laughs> or a petition asking God to give us the grace to look at how we exer exercise power and influence, or to drill down deeper on asking God for the courage to risk. And in addition to song and written resources that already occur, isn't this a dramatically wonderful moment for purpose-written hymn songs and choruses and other liturgical materials? And again, we have poets in our midst. Sometimes we don't empower them because we're afraid that what they provide us may be incomplete. Well, this is a time of risking. This is, and this is a time of partnership, mm -hmm. uh, of sitting down with someone and saying, my goodness, you've, you've done a beautiful thing here. Uh, I wonder if this particular phrase might be a little confusing to some, yeah, that kind of thing, yeah, where mm -hmm. you, yeah, you know. The collaboration. Collaboration, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah mm -hmm. sure enough. And I think our confession really needs to include admitting our fear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And what, wherever it is, whether it's in petitions or confessions, whatever it's in, there is this notion that's been brought to the surface by a wonderful author named Pauline Boss in her book, Ambiguous Loss, that one of the things we have to deal with in life is when we're not sure something or someone is alive or dead. And she writes mainly about persons who, for example, have a, have a soldier missing in action, and it's been years and years, and this, the one at home wonders continually, painfully to ask, is my loved one alive or dead? The same thing with those who care for folks with dementia. Mm -hmm. But in this season in the UMC, we're going to have a ton of ambiguous loss. There will be days when we feel alive and we feel that the church is alive. Maybe we've met someone particularly courageous who says, I think we ought to just try this. Um, some days we will meet people who are not courageous, who are really, really scared, and their fear results in bad behavior. So I don't know how to incorporate this notion of ambiguous loss into liturgy, but boy, I, would like, I sure would like to give it a try. <laughs> I, I've just been... I've just read the book, so my mind's still working on what would it mean to have worship resources about whether at this particular moment we feel more alive or dead. Mm. It is interesting, though, that 
For example, in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, we have the story of the man by the sheepgate pool and the one to whom Jesus comes and says, do you want to be healed? Well, I've often thought about that passage and said, what was the man's question before Jesus arrived? What was his existential crisis? And I've thought for years that that man's basic question is, oh God, am I alive or dead? Mm. <laughs> well, that's. <laughs> I think we've got a, um, a walking partner with that man in the sheepgate pool. And it's like Jesus is saying to the church, do you want to be healed? Yeah. Uh, and wouldn't it be lovely to have worship resources that somehow helped us recognize that ambiguous loss? Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of collaboration, I think we will just need to collaborate with you, John, and, and get a, a cadre together and start start doing that. Yeah, that sounds like something we need to do. The one as you were naming these five adaptive muscles, you know, as you said, we all want to go to that last one and not spend the time at the first one, which is naming the grief and the loss. And I think that's where where we have to start, because if we don't make that space, then the others can't come along. And as I and I totally agree with you. What are the hymn? What what's the hymnody that helps us achieve that? So we'll be we'll be talking about that more on in the worship team. Absolutely. Well, and John, as we come closer to the end of our time, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about your singing in between project and how that might relate to bringing together so many of the. So many of the threads that you have helped us weave in our time together today. Yeah, thanks for that, Lisa. Um, So some months back, realizing that my retirement was fast approaching, (laughs) I said, God, is there something particular you're calling me to do in my retirement? And just clear as day, since I had spent 12 years of my ministerial career on the road as a song enlivener and really bathed in the song of the church, I just heard God say, well, maybe it's time for the church to have a bold, courageous, mature conversation about what we must sing in order to be the church that God is now working so hard to help us create. And so all of a sudden the words singing in between presented themselves that is between right now and some moment years hence when we realize that some very major reconstruction of our church has occurred Mm. and maybe we feel wind in the sails as we have not felt it before. So what I dream of is to gather a team and to ask five or six very basic questions Like, who is the God who is helping us rebuild the church? What kind of disciples is God calling us to be? Or what kind of friends is God calling us to be? What will be the sources of our joy and assurance as we do the hard work of rebuilding the church? Questions like that. Mm. And if we can agree on a set of expansive questions, then to gather a discrete resource 35 or 40 songs altogether, hymn songs and choruses, and circulate them to as many churches as are willing to receive them 
and see if the church would covenant to sing through the collection over a period of time, perhaps 18 months. And the only explicit direction they would get is you cannot say whether you like it or not. That's not a <laughs> that, that that's a question that gets us nowhere. I yeah. I like this one, I don't like this one. That's a dead end question. So what we would be asking is which of these songs provoked the most conversation? Mm. And what was the conversation about? And so that's the substance. I obviously want to work with uh, all manner of people, including you, because we want to find a way to report um, what we discover, mm -hmm. what we hear people saying, and what it might mean. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, I mean... We could just, we're just going to have to talk to you again as this project gets <laughs> off the ground because this is beautiful. I just want to highlight one thing that I, it, it's such an interesting sandwich when we have been talking so much about grief and lament and that importance, but what an important thing to also recognize that for us to move from where we are to where the church is going, we need joy. And I just mm. want to highlight how you've brought that out because I feel like sometimes we get so bogged down by how hard things are. And I don't mean just like the grief and the sorrow, but just this, this liminality, as you've talked about, that we're kind of living in. We can get so bogged down in it that we miss and forget how important it is to resource our joy as the church in the midst of all of it. So I am most looking forward to seeing how that also gets weaved into all of this, all of the projects and the, the, the sending out and the sharing and the reporting back, how joy impacts the ways that we live into these skills and stretch these muscles in our congregations. Yeah, I was in an amazing retreat last week, and it was uh, generative and sobering. It's about the future of the Methodist heritage. And and at one point, the song leader said, anybody want to have an, a hallelujah anyway moment? <laughs> and, uh, and the song that issued forth after that was a true hallelujah moment. And Lisa, it, we needed it. Mm. We needed to sing hallelujah to God. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the wonderful thing about music. Uh, we can be of different opinions, of all, all kinds of, you know, and places in our hearts, but that song will bring us back together. So thank you, John, for being with us today. This is, I, I've written pages and pages as you've talked, and so I have a lot more to come back to you to ask you about. <laughs> but I just want to thank you for being with us today. And I want to thank those who are listening. Glad that you joined us today, and I hope that this has been helpful to you. Remember that you can find more information at our website at umcdiscipleship.org. We want you to tell us what you think, so send us an email. Be in conversation with us. Until next time, we'll be praying for and with you and your congregation. May God continue to bless your worship ministry as you make disciples for the transformation of the world. This podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.